1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host, Jake, and today we'll be talking with Scott Skinner Thompson, an associate professor of law at Colorado Law School. Scott, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Of course. Today we'll be talking about your book, Privacy at the Margins. I was wondering before we got into that, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Yeah, thanks. I'm, uh, uh, as you mentioned, a professor at Colorado Law, where my work focuses on privacy, constitutional law, and civil rights with particular attention to marginalized communities. Why did you write this book? So, My initial uh, interest in privacy for marginalized communities came uh, from when I was in practice and um, was asked to partner with the ACLU to find a jurisdiction uh, that might be fertile for challenging uh, restrictive uh, laws for uh, changing the gender marker on people's, um, identification, uh, documents. And in the process of that research, um, my colleagues identified, uh, Alaska, um, as having robust state, uh, constitutional privacy protections. And, um, the SLU eventually successfully brought a suit challenging their restrictive, um, driver's license, uh, gender marker law. Um, but through that work, um, I began to uh, become more interested in the ways in which um, our administrative systems uh, e- either exclude or over-surveil um, and, and through exclusion make extremely transparent uh, the lives of different marginalized uh, communities. Could you tell us what the title of the book means and how that relates? There's a bit of a t- double entendre in the, the um the, the title, it, it's, it's meant to capture that privacy for marginalized communities is particularly important, but also gestures to the fact that privacy um, has marginalized itself or, or, or set aside as being a, a right of significant importance.
1: Longtime listeners of this podcast have seen privacy through different facets. What does privacy mean for you and in the context of this book?
0: In the context of this book, what, what I try to underscore is that privacy is not ethereal; it's not some just you know philosophical theoretical concept, but it but it actually is incredibly concrete and uh, material, um, particularly for uh, those whose lives are already made uh, vulnerable by dint of their minoritized um, identities. So, um, you know, part of the book is aimed at helping to make. Um, the harms that that flow from privacy violations um, be better understood for the visceral, uh, concrete harms that they are, and, and people from minoritized uh, identities don't don't really need that tutorial. They're, they're already familiar with that through their lived um, experience. But I think many other people in society may view privacy as, as um, uh, you know, a, a, privacy violations as an inconvenience. Uh, at worst, um, but it's much more than that for other communities. How I think about privacy is also that it's not just uh, sort of passive that those who care about privacy are actually actively engaged in an expressive activity that uh, is designed to one reduce harm uh, to reduce the harms that flow from surveillance, but also communicate to uh, the world uh, that they care about their privacy and that they're trying to
1: resist surveillance, um, uh, structures. What do privacy violations look like for minoritized populations?
0: Well, they, they can, I mean, there, there are many examples I could talk about and I'll, I'll just take a, a, a few. I mean, building off my, um, initial interests, um, you know, in, in, privacy for, for queer communities. I mean, there, there's a long history of whether it be people's sexual orientation or, non-normative, uh, gender identities being outed, uh, by, um, individuals, by the government, and then that information being used to, um, to marginalize those groups, whether it be, you know, uh, firing them or, or you know, potentially direct violence, uh, against that, against them. And so, um, uh, you know, and, and and sometimes that violence is perpetrated by uh, other members of society. Sometimes the outing, um, you know, leads to social stigma and, um, you know, s- self-harm. And there, there are some really powerful examples from the case law, for example, where a, a police officer outs, um, it finds two, two boys engaged or, or teens engaged in sexual, um, uh, consensual sexual relations together in a car and threatens to out that information to one of the um family members of of one of the teens, um, and the teens end up uh, committing suicide as a result of that threat. Um, Other other examples uh, include the over-policing of uh, communities of color, black people, uh, Hispanic people, people of Muslim faith, um, and that over-policing inevitably, um, because they're being watched more, leads to more encounters with the carceral system, Uh, which of course is is itself a harm, but
1: also more direct violence from the carceral system. How do current privacy law and legal theories fall short of protecting these minoritized individuals?
0: Privacy violations are not equally borne by us all, and that the law should be more attentive to the ways in which we're not all similarly situated to exposure to the harms from privacy uh, violations and how our laws are set up to basically protect those that already have the means to build their own privacy walls, whether that be literally physical walls or technological uh, uh, barriers to to keep their information secret. So, for example, one uh, uh, of the major flaws with much of privacy doctrine historically has been uh, this rule sometimes referred to as the third party doctrine or the complete secrecy doctrine, which provides that once your information is shared with another or exposed to the public, you more or less, and I'm simplifying here to a degree, more or less uh, lose all privacy protections. And then other private individuals, corporations, or the government have free license to observe you or take that information you've uh, disclosed and otherwise share it. So what that means is that if you are able to, you know, build big walls around your house, then, you know, you can do what you want on your property and not be observed. Conversely, if you live your life in public because you are housing insecure, or, you know, you live in a dense community because of economic uh, precarity, a, a housing project, um, what, what have you, then you, you sort of have no privacy rights to begin with, which in turn, uh, permits the government to conduct more surveillance of you and,
1: uh, as referenced earlier, enmesh you in, for example, the criminal justice system. I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on that last point. In the book, you talk about how um, especially individuals who are needing of aid from the government are surveilled more than the rest of us. I found this a really powerful example, and I was wondering if you could share that with the readers, listeners.
0: Yeah, and, and that point, you know, is, is really one that's been underscored by Kiara Bridges and uh, Virginia Eubanks, who who demonstrate in the context of government services, you know, in order to get a service or, or some small benefit from the government, many uh, people are forced to provide a uh, A whole host of information about themselves. Sometimes this comes in in the form of just filling out forms. Sometimes it comes from invasive questions from social workers and and medical providers. Sometimes it comes in the form of, of home visits, um, from, uh, social services that, that are seeking to, you know, make sure that you are, uh, not living with more people than you're supposed to be living with, or, um, don't have more, um, resources than you, uh, to have and what that does is means you're once again having to share a whole bunch of information which in and of itself can be quite dehumanizing particularly when for example you're you know you're having the government literally come into your home seeing how you live or ask you invasive questions about your sexual uh, health history right that in and of itself is a, a a huge harm and so those that are at the margins of our society have to endure, these kinds of
1: invasions, um, not as the exception, but more as the rule. So in your book, you proposed some possible ways forwards. One of them having to do with the First Amendment? I was wondering if you could explain that.
0: Yeah. So the, the, the First Amendment um, I- intervention is is really designed to help with the the problem we were just discussing about uh, the lack of privacy in, in public. And so part of the reason why um, courts have said that, well, once you have uh, disclose information or go into public, you have diminished privacy rights is based in part on the First Amendment and the idea that, well, we like to encourage the sharing of information in society and allowing that information to be shared actually serves democratic purposes um, and is part and parcel of our First Amendment tradition of allowing for the exchange of speech and the exchange of Uh, information. And, and, you know, and sometimes that's been put to really productive uses. For example, recording of police officers in public space has been deemed protected by the First Amendment. And and I I, I think that's absolutely uh, correct, that there is First Amendment value in sifting through information in the public, particularly about uh, when it's serving a government accountability function, uh, as in that example. However, you know, our our view of the court's view of this has often been pretty lopsided or uh, myopic, and they failed to fully understand uh, the First Amendment democratic purposes of having privacy in public. And so, what the book tries to underscore is that you know allowing people not to be operate under total surveillance in public actually allows people of difference, okay, marginalized identities, to come into the public square and through their identities and through their speech enrich. Uh, the exchange of ideas. If you have a surveilled public square, it is a homogenized public square because people of difference are being pushed out of it and are, are made to feel not uh, welcome. And so, you know, I think understanding that in and of itself will help these discussions about privacy and public take on a richer dimension that more fully captures both the the value of privacy and public to the First Amendment analysis. I also think it's worth bearing in mind that sometimes, not all the time, but when people are engaged in efforts to maintain their anonymity or keep some aspect of their identity private in in public, they are actually communicating something to the outside uh, world. So when someone wears a hoodie, uh, a head veil, or, or refuses to disclose, you know, information about their sex assigned at birth, for example, in the public uh, square, they are uh, performing privacy, right? They are engaged in an act of situated privacy. And that performative act is understood by the government as communicating something. And that's why the government responds with suspicion to people who try to exercise privacy in public. So they understand that something's being communicated, but they react to that with suspicion and additional targeting so i think a strong argument can be made that acts of privacy in public are expressive themselves communicate something to the government and therefore should be understood as a kind of symbolic conduct okay or expressive conduct that is entitled to first amendment protection in the same way that burning a flag, okay, is communicate something and it's prote- covered by the first amendment, you know, trying to physically obfuscate your body is communicating something about your values uh, and your views on surveillance. And therefore it should be uh, covered under uh, the first amendment as expressed. Does
1: this relate to performative privacy
0: at all? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's an, an example of uh, performative privacy that that when people take efforts to keep information about themselves obscured, they're not only functionally trying to uh, to achieve that goal, but they're also performing something or communicating something uh, outward. And this gets back to what I mentioned outside of our conversation, which is that Privacy is not passive, right? It's actually an active right that people uh, engage in with uh, great intentionality. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who, you know, wears a hoodie is thinking, oh, I want to maintain my privacy when they go out in public. But I will say that oftentimes the government or surveillers respond to it, okay, with suspicion, view it, as expressive, and under First Amendment doctrine, uh, the government's reaction is, is is of great relevance
1: in determining whether or not something is expressive and uh, and therefore um, protected. How can constitutional law empower the government to regulate private party surveillance? We've talked a lot about how the government can surveil individuals, but I'm curious also about the private sector.
0: Yeah, great question. So, I mean, this this you know. It, it, And just to contextualize this discussion a little bit, right? You have companies like uh, Clearview AI who are scraping the internet for people's faces to help train their um, facial recognition uh, software. And they say, well, look, this information has been exposed to the public. People put their photos on the web and therefore it's a free game under the First Amendment for me, Clearview, to harvest it and do what we want with it. I think that consistent with the First Amendment Regulation of that practice will be on stronger footing once we understand the ways in which privacy advances First Amendment uh, goals. And so, understanding that privacy serves these important democratic, expressive functions will serve as a defense when the government tries to justify its regulation of companies like Clearview. We can say, look, you know, it, it may be that having access to public information serves a First Amendment goal. But that's not the only First Amendment uh, interest at play. And our regulation of you is justified by the compelling government interest of protecting this privacy, which in turn
1: is a First Amendment value. So what are some alternative legal theories that are better than what we currently have in place today to help protect privacy?
0: Well, I I think that my two main interventions are um, understanding privacy's direct expressive value, as we've been talking about, and Understanding privacy's ability to mitigate concrete uh, harms, Uh, you know, in the book, I I draw out um, from constitutional law examples of where when those two things are present, uh, litigants have had much more success in protecting their rights. So those are the two like principal theoretical and legal interventions. Does this relate at all to informational privacy as well? It's a good question. I mean, I think we've been talking a lot about privacy in in public, but by that, it, it usually refers to privacy in public space. But informational privacy, which is also often understood as information about someone um, that can be disclosed, suffers from the same uh, doctrinal footholds. Right? Like, if you've shared, even if it's not about your physical location in public space, if you've disclosed your HIV status to Uh, someone then or with it among certain intimates in your life, then, you know, under traditional privacy theory, that your privacy interest in that information is decreased. I think understanding the ways in which that information is material and and concrete can really help create better informational privacy protections under the due process clause vis-a-vis the government. I'm also acutely interested in the ways in which informational privacy claims in tort law have been, uh, for those of marginalized communities, have been devalued in the courts of law. And so the end of the book focuses on uh, what I see as unequal application of privacy tort law to uh, marginalized um, uh, groups. Um, and, And the reason for that is both the requirement for complete secrecy in the information, which we've already talked about, but also, I think, a misapprehension among courts and societies of the degree of harm that is being suffered when that information is uh, disclosed, right? Like, information that may seem banal to a person of privilege is really acutely significant to those that have the less social means to absorb the costs of any privacy violation. And and sort of counterintuitively, though, people of privilege... For example, celebrities are under tort law supposed to have diminished privacy protections. What we see in the cases is that people like Hulk Hogan, right, that have profited from exposing information about themselves, succeed more readily in their privacy tort suits than people from marginalized identities um, who have, you know, similar information. About, for example, in this example, their sex lies exposed. Would you mind expanding on that a little bit more and giving a concrete example? In case folks aren't uh, aware, Hulk, Hulk Hogan uh, sued uh, Gawker for um, the tort of public disclosure because Gawker disclosed you know, aspects of a, of a sex video that Hulk Hogan had had. And Hulk Hogan sued them and won to the tunes of, of over $100 million. Conversely, okay, when a gay parishioner Sues his pastor for outing him to the congregation. He doesn't uh, prevail, and and again, that might be because at times that's because the 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 courts say, well, you didn't keep this information totally secret, or they say, well, you didn't comply with the other requirement of of vindicating this tort, which is that or one of the other requirements that it be widely disseminated. I suggest that that requirement needs to be contextualized a little bit because what's widely disseminated to, you know, in this example, the parishioner I was talking about is his community, that, that, that church, right? And that may not be the whole world, right? It may not be Gawker It may not be a giant website, but, you know, it's wide enough uh, for the harm uh, to uh, occur, which is to say that these requirements need to be, that there needs to be some gradation injected into them to uh, consider the social context of each individual. And for minoritized people or marginalized people, you know, it may not always be that like it has to be disseminated all over the internet for the harm to occur.
1: Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It sounds like a great book. Thanks so much for having me,
0: Jake. Really appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts. Of course, if people want to find out more about you or find the book, where can they go? The book is, you know, available at any major um, online retailer, but, um, you know, your local bookstore may have it as well. Great. Thanks again. Thanks so much, Jake.